So I believe we now have a package that can take us to our goal, which is now a legal obligation of reducing our emissions with at least 55% by 2030, which will set us on a path of climate neutrality. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Franz Timmermans, the European Commission's Green Deal chief, unveiling a huge package of measures designed to make sure the EU slashes carbon emissions in the years to come. We'll talk more about the battles ahead over those measures later in the podcast. But we've packed a whole lot more of Europe into this podcast as well. We'll get up to speed on the EU's big coronavirus recovery fund by talking to a senior Dutch official who was at the table when government signed off on the first national recovery plans this week. And we'll delve into the political repercussions of the Euro 2020 final with reporters in both Italy and England. But first, let's get a little pandemic postcard from Paris by checking in with podcast regular Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. So we've uh, only got you for a few minutes, but we did want to make the most of that. Get a little postcard uh, from Paris because uh, some quite big news on the coronavirus front, if you like, this week with uh, President Emmanuel Macron setting out a bunch of measures around vaccination and the rules that will apply in terms of people being vaccinated or, or not being vaccinated. Give us a quick summary of, of what Macron said first. Yeah, so Macron came out and gave his eighth presidential address to the nation since the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic. And he came as close as he will get, I think, to basically making vaccination compulsory. So he came out and he said, healthcare workers, people who work in clinics, they have to be vaccinated by September and there will be a law that will be passed. He also said, and this is sort of his roundabout way of making it compulsory, that by August, anyone who wants to go to a restaurant, anyone who wants to get on a plane, take a train ride, take a long bus ride, they're going to have to show, using this green pass, proof of vaccination or a negative PCR test. And here's the kicker. PCR tests so far have been completely free in France, and now they will no longer be free unless you have a medical prescription. So this was his way to squeeze those people who were still very reticent to get vaccinated. But obviously, we know how much the French love to go to a cafe or a restaurant, especially during the summer, to make them feel like, okay, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you're going to have to pay these 50 euros every two days to get a PCR wow. test. That's like almost like an entry, a very expensive entry fee to go to the cafe, right? It's a coffee that's going to cost you like 55 euros. Exactly. And what was interesting is what social scientists call a nudge effect. As soon as he did that, almost a million people signed up for vaccination within a few hours from his announcement, which is just wow. a very interesting revealing thing about, you know, French psychology. Right. Do, do the French need to be made to do things in order for them to actually do them? And the reaction has been interesting. Politically, there isn't much of a vigorous opposition. But of course, on social media, uh, a lot of people have taken a kind of what Americans would call libertarian position, saying that this is an encroachment on personal freedom. But what these people, I think, forget is that in France, there's already 10 compulsory vaccinations that you need to take in order to, you know, for your kids to go to school, for example, they need to have these 10 vaccinations. You also, of course, are have to wear a seatbelt. I mean, these are all things that everyone accepts. 
And so this debate about making the coronavirus vaccination compulsory is going in that direction. So basically, it's a big announcement, but let's see in the fine print what actually will be enforced. The reality is it's true that uh, there are still quite a big portion of people above 60 years old that have not gotten the vaccine yet in France. And that was the main target of that uh, address by Emmanuel Macron, who, of course, made these comments also and, and these announcements with an eye on trying to preserve his own chances of getting reelected because... If there is a fourth wave and it endangers the economic recovery, they will dent his chances of getting re-elected in quite a real way. And that's what he's thinking of long term. Mm. OK, let's move to another topic, the sort of big topic, the big European event of the weekend. We're going to bring in some colleagues to talk about that a bit more. But let's start with your take on Euro 2020. It raised all sorts of um political issues, um, which we'll explore in a moment. But uh, did you watch? Did you enjoy the final? Did you take a side? I'm a huge football fan, like massive. I watch it all the time. My team, of course, was France from the beginning. And well, we kind of crashed out. It would really be very ironic for the, the English side to have won the Euro. And I feel like that was a real undercurrent of sort of the mood uh, here. You could sense it, of course, in London as well. You know, that would have been kind of sweet revenge by the British. And I, I will say a lot of people in the EU were very, very relieved. I, I was of two minds. I, I really, really loved uh, the story of this English side and the Italian side as well played such, such a good game. So I was happy. All in all. Yeah, they're both very likeable teams, I think. But uh, the, the final did also threw up some pretty serious political issues and there were some repercussions from the final or, uh, you know, events around it, which uh, unfortunately did cast a bit of a shadow over uh, the end of the tournament, a tournament that overall, at least in terms of the football, I think has been hugely enjoyable and a great, you know, release and relief for, for a lot of us after, you know, what's obviously been a pretty uh, rough uh, year and a half. So we'll explore more of those topics in a moment, but we'll let you go for now. Thanks very much, Reem. Thank you. Oh, it is absolute scenes, absolute scenes. Everyone's jumping up and down, waving their shirts, waving their flags. Oh, this is what football's all about. And now, Italy win. So uh, let's talk Euro 2020, uh, not the tactics and the analysis and whether the right players were chosen for the penalties. Uh, you can find plenty of that in other podcasts, but let's focus on the politics. So let's bring in Ali Walker, our in-house sports expert. Hi, Ali. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me again. You're very welcome. And we have uh, representing the two sides in the final, but of course, um, not partisan in any way. First of all, Annabelle Dixon, our UK correspondent. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And from Rome, our Italy correspondent, Hannah Roberts. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Andrew. So, and I've got, can, can I, I should just say maybe before we go any further, I'm sure England fans are delighted to hear we've got two Scots people on to give uh, unbiased opinions on how England did uh, in this tournament, uh, not just in a sporting sense, but also politically. But, you know, we were, we're wearing our kind of referees outfits, if you like, uh, for this discussion. Ali, just before we started recording, as I say, you know, there are various political aspects to this tournament. You did an A to Z of, of Euro 2020 for us, and a lot of the entries there were political. Do you want to pick out a few of the of the ways that Euro 2020 got political? I mean, it really started 
before the tournament, in a way. Um, England played a couple of warm-up matches in Middlesbrough, before which the players took the knee uh, for racial equality. And, you know, they were booed by sections of the crowd at those friendly matches. And that that blew up into a kind of political discussion even before the tournament started. And as I'm sure Annabelle will get to later, that was still that is still going on this week. Beyond that, uh, there was a spat between Russia and Ukraine over a map and a couple of slogans on the Ukrainian strip. Uh, There were matches played in kind of controversial host venues like Baku and Budapest. And then there was a a real row which kind of dominated the second week of the tournament over the uh, rainbow illumination or not of the Munich Stadium and the issue of LGBTQ plus rights. So it really just showed, it felt to me like, you know, this international sport is just, you know, it was an example of it being inherently political. Yeah, maybe in some ways. I can't actually recall a tournament when there have been so many political, you know, subplots, if you like, although they were in some cases more than subplots. They were real themes uh, running through the tournament. Before we get into some of the, you know, the more the more negative stuff, maybe let's just have a bit of, uh, you know, La Dolce Vita. Get a sense of, of how Italy has celebrated this triumph, Hannah. Just, you know, where did you go to watch it? How did Italians respond? I'm sure in a very un- understated uh, way, but, you know, give us a flavour of it. Well, actually, all the English pubs in uh, in Rome seem to be booked up half with Italians because it's quite popular to go to this kind of English pub to watch the sports. There's a triumph. Yeah, so I ended up watching it in a, in a rooftop bar. And uh, then went down to the Colosseum and the Forum immediately after the win. And it was just incredible. I mean, Italy's been celebrating every win in the knockout with big parties. But this was just indescribable. The noise of the honking horns, that there's this kind of Italian tradition that after a win, you get in your car or on your scooter with a big flag and drive around in circles. (laughs) But also, uh, Hannah, it feels like, you know, Italy obviously suffered really under the pandemic, bore the brunt of that first wave in Europe anyway. But it feels like uh, some Italians anyway are, are interpreting this as part of a of a broader trend, right, of a kind of Italy being on a bit of a roll. Yeah, I mean, presumably a lot of people haven't gone back and compared all the lists of the winners of Eurovision and the Euros, as I have. But I can tell you that this is the first time that any country has won the double Eurovision and mm-hmm. the Euros in one year. So hats off. To Italy, yeah, and and but but also, and as people can read in Hannah's story, we'll include a link to it. You know, in the political arena, in various other ways, it does feel like um, Italy's had a, a bit of a confidence boost in the past few months, right? Yeah, as you say, Italy's been on a roll this year. First of all, getting Mario Draghi, a prime minister who can just about walk on water, he's a sort of wizard who can slash the cost of debt with a wave of his wand and boost GDP predictions. And of course, secured the the recovery fund of 209 billion for Italy. And then on Sunday, it was looking really dangerous with Italy threatening not only to win the Euros, but Wimbledon. Well, that would have been quite the double, an even bigger double than winning the Eurovision and uh, and the European Championship. So, Annabelle, let's come to, you know, the other side of the story. Um, England lost and lost on penalties. And we should say that this is the first major final England uh, got to since uh, 1966. 
a year that's almost uh, never mentioned in uh, English sporting coverage. But, uh, you know, they got to the final and they didn't just get to the final. They got to penalties against a very good Italy team. So in some ways, you know, there was quite a lot of good news there. And this was also, I would say, a very likable England team. And so in a sense, there was potentially a lot of good news out of this for England, by extension, Boris Johnson and the, and the UK government. But it hasn't really turned out that way, right, in terms of the political aftermath. Yeah, it really did turn sour. I was doing the weekend shift and on Sunday morning, all the talk was about Boris Johnson giving us all a bank holiday. And then by Monday morning, you know, he, he was the villain. And the reason was, obviously, after those penalties, these young players stepped up and, you know, we lost a penalty shootout again. And, you know, within moments, the racist abuse started. Okay, so now why is Boris Johnson the villain here? Because obviously he is not sending any of this racist abuse, but yet the whole row over this seems to have backfired on his government. Yeah, that's right. So it's, as Ali alluded to at the beginning, it, it was over the issue of, of taking the knee. So obviously there was a lot of controversy around it and he and his ministers were asked about it before the tournament and, and during the tournament because some England fans booed the players and ultimately they wouldn't condemn it. You know, Boris Johnson eventually said, you know, I, I, I want you to get behind the team, but, you know, it wasn't particularly strong. The argument that is given for why some people object to taking the knee or will not condemn those who boo players taking the knee is that somehow uh, that this is directly related to the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, by extension, People like Nigel Farage and others have, have said, you know, this is basically a communist group and people have every right to boo, you know, players who are using a gesture associated with this group. And of course, the answer has come back loud and clear from the England team. This is not about any movement. This is not about any political ideology beyond racial equality. And they made that very, very clear. But as you say, certain conservative politicians did not really accept that explanation. How has the government tried to kind of deal with all of this? Well, they've turned their fire on on the social media companies. There's been a lot of noise in the last couple of days about how they're going to sort of throw the book at, at the social media companies that they're going to regulate. There was already this bill that's been in the works for ages, actually, which is going to re have, have a regulator who works with social media companies to actually sort of force them to take down this sort of stuff and face huge fines if they don't. I think there's quite a lot of conservatives. Certainly, um, I've had Tory contacts in the last few days saying they how uncomfortable they feel about the whole thing. You know, this is privately because they're a bit nervous about this sort of culture war that they feel that the prime minister's been raging. Which is a kind of anti-woke, right? A sort of war on woke, although they don't call it that. Exactly. It's, I guess it's the sort of the shock jock columnist in Boris Johnson. And they're saying, you know, actually, this is quite counterproductive. And, you know, we don't really feel comfortable with this. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting over the next few months to, to see how Boris Johnson reacts to that. Mm -hmm. The other, you know, very disturbing thing to come out of the final uh, was some of the scenes of, of violence that we saw in and around uh, Wembley Stadium. Uh, we saw people able to enter the stadium without tickets, basically forcing their way into this showpiece event, which normally, you know, you would expect to be extremely well policed and extremely well protected. And we just saw scenes, frankly, that, you know, we haven't really seen 
in international football for years in terms of fighting inside and, and around the stadium. I was just going to say it certainly damaged England's reputation abroad. I mean, there was just so many reasons to be embarrassed as an English person, weren't there? There was the lasers, the uh, dodgy penalty, racial abuse. Okay, well, now everybody wants to come in. Now everyone wants to come in and defend it. Well, Annabelle's got her hand up. She's not taking it. She's not taking it. <laughs> she's not. She's not going to take this lying down. Go on, Annabelle. Yeah, I think I agree that you know those images beamed around the world have not helped. We haven't even mentioned the um, the flare, the flare positioned in a indiscreet part of the body. I don't know if anybody saw that. This is a um, family podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Families gather around to listen to it every week. Yeah. Go on, Annabelle. But actually, I think in defence of the English, the sort of pushback against some of the things that we've seen um, has been so strong. And a mural of Marcus Rashford, one of those young players, was vandalised in Greater Manchester, where he's from. And you know, people turned up, they put post-it notes of love all over it. And and I also think the way that the England players have conducted themselves as well, you know, Gareth Southgate, the England manager, the way he's been so articulate and and dealt with this. England are in a major final. I imagine this is a day you've dreamt about for years. Yeah, I think to see the impact it's had on everybody, our drive to the stadium was an amazing experience for all of us. So every community, every religion, um, every heritage was fabulous to see. I actually think he has been a very good ambassador for England. I would agree that the team acquitted themselves where it was the fans that let England down a bit. And uh, I was actually at the England 4-0 victory uh, match in Rome where all the fans were expats from all over Europe where we saw the most well-behaved Barmy army you've ever seen. <laughs> it was all these sort of middle-class professionals getting just as drunk. <laughs> well, but, and of course some people would tell you that's all that, that's what's gone wrong with football is full of there's too many middle-class professionals. But yeah, perhaps you know they, they, have their, they have their advantages. We could talk about this, uh, and I think people will keep talking about a lot of this for, for you know weeks and, and months and, and years to come, but we'd better blow the final whistle. So Hannah, Annabelle, Ali, thanks very much. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You. We'll be right back with your guide to the EU's brand new package of laws to tackle climate change and with an update on the EU's economic recovery plans. Stay with us. So I'm joined by Kalina Orashakov, our climate reporter. We have dragged her away from the newsroom on one of her busiest days. And that is because uh, the European Commission has unveiled a huge pile of legislation under the banner Fit for 55. Kalina, if you can, I was going to say in 12 words or less, but maybe not quite that short. But give us the brief overview of what Fit for 55 is. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I actually enjoy this break. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, good, it's good that I had to get up from my chair, walk over here and sit down. Kind of like yeah. gives me a bit of a sporty activity. I think I could probably try in 12 words. Essentially, it's the European Commission trying to make sure that the EU can reduce emissions by at least 55% by 2030 and reduce them to net zero by 2050. Right. So it's a whole pile of measures or, or um, proposals to try and get Europe there. What are the kind of headline proposals? What are the most radical, the ones that are likely to attract most attention? So there's a few proposals that have already attracted major attention in the run-up to the package. As you know yourself very well, 
even the the weeks before the commission comes out with proposals, everyone is trying to get the leaks and already try to preview what could be or should be expected on the day. One of the major headline announcements today is the idea of stopping the sale of fossil fuel cars. So the internal combustion engine, making it history by 2035. That was already an issue that we thankfully scooped a couple of weeks ago and then triggered a lot of reaction in the weeks um, following that. And it's also become a political issue pitting various countries against each other. A second proposal that is extremely sensitive and the commission nevertheless went ahead with it was introducing a carbon market, so an emissions trading system for the road transport and building sectors. So the idea is that you start putting a price on the heating and car fuels that you use to squeeze out fossil fuels and make it more expensive to pollute. Why is that so political? Well, for those that remember the last years, especially for the French, this whole idea of having a popular backlash to rising fuel and rising other prices that affect your daily life is always a political issue here and has especially triggered a lot of angst on the continent that Brussels might be wading into people's personal space and personal lives and create a popular backlash. Of course, Brussels has been aware of that, which is why it's been very, very hard at work to convince everybody, especially the governments that it will have to negotiate these proposals with, that it's come up and thought about redistributional measures to make sure that those that are poorer and more vulnerable and will be more affected by rising prices and rising costs will be in some way sheltered and shielded from these measures. And today proposed a social climate fund mm. to, to redistribute money. Right, they talk a lot about a just transition. I mean, in other words, making it fair, making sure that people who are, you know, not well equipped to survive this transition on their own or cope with it on their own would get some kind of assistance. So, where does it go from here? How much of this is down to European institutions and how much of it is down to national governments? That, I would argue, is the big question that will have to be determined in the negotiations that are essentially going to kick off now. So now that the Commission put out all of these proposals, it's really about the European Parliament and the EU member states, so the, the Council, to come up with their own views. And that balance that you're asking about is the eternal tension um, when it comes to climate policy. And the tougher um, the environmental requirements get, also based on the scientific necessity to speed up emission reductions to at least stem warming to an extent that is still livable for all of us. Um, that question about where do you shift the power is becoming more urgent. And I would argue with this package, we will see quite a number of fights exactly about how much responsibility will be given to the market, so to market mechanisms, how much responsibility will sit in Brussels to enforce requirements, and how much will member states have to do on top of that in addition to the proposals that we see um, coming out now. In the end, compromises will have a lot to do with how much money those governments will be able to receive that especially fear the consequences for their own economies and their people. And that, of course, is largely in Central and Eastern Europe, where the economies are still heavily dependent on either coal or other polluting energy sources, but also where the structure of the economy is still quite polluting, including the structure of their society is based on carbon-intensive 
infrastructure, be that the heating systems, district heating, etc. So there's huge infrastructure challenges that go hand in hand with some of the more politically motivated concerns that are being voiced in Brussels. Right. I mean, obviously, whenever there may be money on the table, governments are going to be trying their best to get some of that. But uh, as you say, there is also a lot of scientific fact in terms of you just look at the dependence on fossil fuels behind some of these claims. Maybe finally, just put this in global context. The European Commission has really gone big on this. Um, you know, Ursula von der Leyen has talked about it as a kind of seminal moment for the European Union. We do not have all the answers yet. Today is the start of a journey. But this is Europe's man on the moon moment. How big a deal is this um, internationally? How does it compare with the efforts or plans of, say, China, Asia, the United States, North America? Where, is the, where does the European Union fit into all of this? Internationally, it is a huge deal. And even if the EU is always, or especially European Commission, is always very keen on presenting itself as the global leader in essentially any area that it legislates in, I would argue that when it comes to climate legislation, it deserves that name. That doesn't mean that it's the best of what it does, but it's definitely the first major economy that has set out to implement the targets that it's adopted. And so in that sense, we're seeing an interesting race because, of course, the U.S. under Joe Biden is moving in that direction. But the European Commission with today's package is really starting the legislative and extreme painstaking um, effort in translating all of these things in targets and regulation and other standards that will have to be abided in the future. It wants to also lead the world in selling a model that is exportable. So that's the whole point about the European Green Deal and Ursula von der Leyen's enthusiastic comments about this man on the moon moment. There's this idea that the EU really has found a new blueprint for how we can live be prosperous and survive in an environment or in a, on a planet that isn't overheating. Okay, great. Well, we'll follow all of this as it plays out in the months and years ahead. Thanks very much, Kalina. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's turn our focus to Europe's economic recovery from the pandemic. Cast your mind back to this time last year when EU leaders took part in a marathon summit and decided on how they wanted to finance Europe's economic recovery. They agreed on a mega 750 billion euro package, which includes a mixture of grants and loans to each European country to finance its own post-pandemic economic plan. Fast forward to today and countries are now submitting their plans for how to spend this recovery cash to the European Commission. It takes a look and then countries in the council ultimately have the final say on whether these plans meet all of the necessary conditions. And then, in theory at least, the money should start to flow. So following all of these developments very closely for us is our own Paula Tama. Hi, Paula. Hi, Andrew. So, Paula, I just gave the kind of potted summary there of how plans to spend this recovery money are moving along. There's been a lot of movement on this in the past weeks, in the past days. So give us a summary. Where do things stand now in terms of countries getting their hands on the EU cash to fund their economic recoveries? Indeed, it has been a busy week with the first 12 countries getting their plans approved by the council, by their peers on Wednesday including the largest beneficiaries, so Italy and Spain. And this approval by the Council is the final moment 
in order to get the cash flowing. What is surprising, perhaps, is that these countries received sort of smooth sailing in the council. There was not a whole lot of pressure being put on them, partly because there has been a lot of technical work being done in the past weeks and months. And so these plans received the green light. Okay, so you spoke to someone who was at this week's council meeting, that meeting of finance ministers and senior officials who signed off on those first 12 plans. Tell us who you spoke to. Yeah, so this week I sat down in the council building here in Brussels with the Secretary of State of Finance from the Netherlands. I'm Hans Felbrief. I am the State Secretary for Taxation in my country, and I'm here because the minister is not able to attend. He hails from a party in the Netherlands called D66. The party is sort of a mix of, let's say, market-oriented economics, but very liberal and progressive on anything else. And he's had a very long career in the Dutch civil service. In 1992, I uh, started working for the Dutch government, very long civil servant. Uh, my most important period has been since 2011. Bec then I became... And as a politician, he's no stranger to Brussels. For two years, I became the president of your working group and the Economic Financial Committee. That's the committees who sort of prepare ECOFIN and Eurogroup here in Brussels. And then January 2020, I was called to be the vice minister for taxation at the Ministry of Finance. So he's currently in this role as a caretaker because the Netherlands is in the process of creating a new government after their election in March failed to produce very clear results. And he's confident that his party will be in the government whenever it forms. I am only going to make one prediction. We will be in. My party is the second largest party in the country needed in any kind of coalition. So we will certainly be in, I guess. But this has also meant the Netherlands has yet to propose a recovery plan to Brussels. We hope to have a government very soon after the summer, and then this new government can make the plan and can deliver this to Brussels. That's my hope. Okay, but in the meantime, the Dutch, just like many countries, have an opinion on how the money should be spent. And regular listeners to this podcast will know that the Netherlands is part of the so-called Frugal Four, a group of countries which are generally uh, more stringent, more hawkish about uh, EU spending and about how governments spend EU money in particular, uh, with particular conditions attached often. Exactly. And last year, the Dutch pushed very hard to make the linkage between the EU recovery fund, so this pot of money, which is financed by joint debt, and structural reforms. So changes in the pension system, tax system, labor reform, and so on. And this is new. This is a new ask for Brussels, but it's the first time that Brussels puts money on the table. And if countries want to have access to it, then they have to commit and deliver significant reforms and prove that they have met these requirements. I mean, it's a very old wish of the Dutch government, but also of myself, to try to link money from Europe to reforms that has been paramount in all our thinking for many years. So in general, we're quite happy with this linking because we think, uh, for example, take the climate issue or take uh, labor market issues or pension issues. It's not only a matter of money, but also of reforms. And if you don't link up these two, it won't work very well. But there are a few countries like Italy and Spain whose plans were approved, even though they did not include key reforms others like the Dutch were hoping for. For example, Italy had a requirement to reform its tax system, and it does include things to fight tax evasions and so on. 
But a reform of the personal income tax, which is something that the government led by Mario Draghi, former ECB president, has committed itself to, does not feature in the plan as one of the obligatory conditions to unlock further payments. Why haven't you gone very hard on them for that? Uh, you, you, can, you can do basically two things in this kind of situation. You can be very sort of critical, very hard on them, as you call it, and sort of start criticizing them. But if you, if you try to think about what the Sp- Spaniards are doing, linking their reforms on the labor market up with talks with social partners, well, I mean, it's hard for a Dutchman to say no to this because it's the way we've done it for ages. So I don't think it's that strange. On the other hand, the commission and the council should be very sort of precise with when milestones come, whether milestones have been sort of reached. So that's the way to deal with this, I would say. What about Italy? Well, Italy basically the same. I mean, if I look at the large vein of the Italian program, you can criticize what you want. You can say, oh, it's not 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 precise enough, etc., etc. But take, for example, there's been a, a very long discussion about the judicial system and the and the Draghi government seems to attack that and it's in the program. Well, okay, that's in my view very, very important. And then, of course, taxes are also very important, but I mean, this is also very important. So that's what he had to say about the plans that have now been approved, meaning these countries can start spending their recovery money. But what about those countries still to come? There's been, I mean, a lot of controversy about some of them already, right? Exactly. So the next batch might prove to be a bit more difficult. Among the countries that are due to be approved next are Hungary and Poland, with which the Commission has pending legal proceedings on the rule of law. And the Commission is in a tussle with Budapest over its recovery plan, because it argues that it does not do enough to protect EU money from corruption and fraud. So the plan of Budapest has been put on hold. For Poland, the Commission has a little while longer, until the beginning of August, to reach a decision. But already in the Council, a number of countries, including the Netherlands and the Nordics, have already made their voice heard on the issue of the rule of law and ensuring that this is respected whenever EU funds are at stake. And we do expect these countries to become even more vocal once the Commission endorses the plans of Hungary and Poland and they land in the Council later this summer or in the fall. The rule of law is, of course, at the heart of our economic system. Our economic system is based on the fact that every entrepreneur and every consumer can get its its rights if if he or she needs it. So if a country doesn't adhere to the rule of law, or if it doesn't have the right, all the systems, etc., to enforce the rule of law, or if it doesn't make in its investments, doesn't keep in mind the rule of law, for example, are your education expenditures really sort of neutral for the kind of what they do? If these things are not sort of safeguarded, then your economic system won't work. So this rule of law is paramount for any kind of economic growth or economic well-being in in general. So, I think I caught a reference there to a Hungarian bill which prohibits the promotion or portrayal of homosexuality to minors. And the Commission has been reluctant to link this issue specifically to the disbursements of the funds, 
but are you making that request? I'm, I, we should split sort of responsibilities here. The only thing I was telling you, I was telling you what I said in the meeting, very specifically. It's up to the commission to make its judgment on the program. Okay, Paula. Well, we hope you'll keep us posted on how the next batch of plans come together. In the meantime, thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can always send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.